0: This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music. It chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. While this podcast doesn't really tell a linear story and will jump back and forth through time, it's actually best to start at the beginning. So I encourage you to go back and do that and start listening at episode one. Episode five, love is a long road. There were so many times I would wake up at noon, yeah, with my head spinning round, I would wait for the moon, and give her one more chance to try and save my soul, but love is a long, long road. Tom Petty, Love is a Long Road. Exploding Boy called it quits after 13 years together in the early part of 2000. The stress and strain of the road had gotten to us, and my friendship with Jay had become compromised. For me, I think one of the most major disappointments toward the end of our 13-year run was watching things devolve steadily into a cover band over the last three to four years. When we started out in 1987, we weren't even old enough to have written that much original material, even though I was always writing back then. Our first club dates had us playing about a 70-30 split of covers to originals. The manager of the very first club we played, a place called Idols in downtown Rochester, thought highly enough of us to keep us coming back. His name was Richard Caza. I remember him pulling me aside and talking to me in the DJ booth at the club one night after we had performed. The sound in that place was absolutely pounding, so it was less of a talk, more of a friendly shout. Richard told me that he would agree to keep booking us as long as we promised to have at least one or more new original tunes to play at every single show. He didn't have a need for cover bands in his club. We were very hungry and ambitious, so this was not a big ask of us. The truth is that Exploding Boy owes Richard a huge debt of gratitude, and I have recently reached out to him on Facebook to tell him as much publicly. He kept good to his word, as did we. And we were rewarded with some of the best and most coveted slots that Idols had to offer. We ended up opening for a flock of seagulls there early on, and it put us on the map, not only for the regular patrons of the club, but in Rochester as well. Idols was a very hip club that hosted some really, really serious bands and artists at the time. Richard's stamp of approval gave us instant clout and credibility at a time when we weren't old enough to even legally be in the building. He arranged for some all-ages shows for us as well to accommodate our crowd, which was comprised mostly of underage high school students at that time. We eventually worked our way up to doing mostly original material every time we'd play. We'd always leave room for one or two cover songs interspersed throughout our set to keep things fresh for us and for our audience. By the time Exploding Boy had relocated to Northern Virginia in the mid-90s, the tables had flipped and we were forced to play 90% cover material in order to keep working. It felt weird squeezing in one or two original songs per set, and I hated it. The crowds in most places were just there to be at the particular venue. We weren't really winning any fans or advancing any type of career. We were just making money. We had become whores. Once Anthony had left the band, things had started to become completely unrecognizable in too many ways to mention. And that is not me shitting on Paul, Joel, or Jim's time and contributions to our effort. I loved playing with all those guys. I wanted to play music for a living, I just didn't want to do it being in a cover band. And I'm not sure I really knew it at the time. I just knew I was really unhappy. It would be many years until I worked all these things out for myself. I recall our very first major record label showcase in New York City at a club called MK. It was a swanky place. I'm sure it hasn't existed there for a long time at this point. My parents had taken a train from Rochester to come and support us on the night, and even though we played our hearts out, the answer from the labels in attendance was sadly, no. And they told us that right on the spot after our set. Exploding Boy isn't right for our label, but we wish you the best of luck. I remember just being so disappointed and feeling so rejected. We had already worked so hard up to that point. It was a bitter pill to swallow. We all had such high expectations and believed in ourselves to an incredibly high degree. I went off close to tears that night to sit in one of the empty stairwells of the club to try and shake things off after the label rep slagged us off. My dad sensed my pain and could see how upset I was. He followed me into the stairwell and said something very sweet and very poignant to me to give me comfort. I feel like this path for you is going to be like that Beatles song, The Long and Winding Road. You just have to be patient, and eventually you'll end up where you need to be. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight, and there are probably going to be a lot more ups and downs before you get there. Boy, was he ever right. By early 2000, Jason's girlfriend had taken a position as a PA at a hospital in Connecticut, and my girlfriend at the time had gotten into school in Gainesville, Florida, And it was just the obvious right time to go our separate ways. Jay and I sat down one day towards the end and I told him that I loved him and that I didn't want to hate him ever for any reason. We were fighting all the time at that point and the pressure had reached critical mass. It was the right time to cap it. I remember helping Jay and his girlfriend pack their moving van the day they left for their new life in Connecticut. I sat in my car sobbing as I watched them drive off. A few months later, my girlfriend Kelly and I loaded our moving van and headed off to Gainesville, Florida to start our own new journey. Walking away from Exploding Boy was easily one of the scariest and hardest things I've ever done. There was no roadmap. Hell, there wasn't even a road. One. Wilbur Wu. Several months earlier, Kelly and I made a trip to Gainesville to find a place to live, and so that I could do a little reconnaissance work to figure out whether or not I'd be able to make any money playing solo acoustic gigs there or not. Thankfully, Gainesville was a huge college party town and had no shortage of venues. The population there was starved for entertainment, and at the time, there wasn't anyone with remotely my level of experience playing there. One of the first venues that I checked out prior to moving there was a place called the Grog House. It was a decent-sized college bar on the upstairs level of a complex of bars that overlooked University Avenue directly across the street from the University of Florida campus. I went in on a slammed Friday night armed with a demo cassette and met the bar manager at the time, a guy named Wilbur Wu. Wilbur was a Chinese-American guy. He was a former football player and most likely weighed in excess of 250 pounds. He was a big dude. He was also very friendly and very likable right off the bat. I explained to him that I'd be moving there in February of the coming year and that I was looking to get some gigs around town. We exchanged numbers, and I told him I'd be in touch as soon as I got to town. A few months later, Kelly and I had just pulled into town on what also happened to be a Friday evening. She, driving her car with our dog Cody riding along, and me driving an enormous 26-foot U-Haul moving truck with all of our worldly possessions inside and my car in tow behind it on a trailer. Talk about a stressful drive. I will never do that shit again. I don't think we'd even been in town for an hour, and we hadn't unloaded much of anything from the moving truck when we checked our voicemail and found a message from none other than Wilbur Wu, manager of the Grog House. He said that he had a cancellation and needed someone to play that night. Even though I had just driven six or seven hours and had to dig a little to find my gear, I still called Wilbur right back and told him I'd do the gig for sure. Sometimes the best way to start something is just to dive in headfirst. By this time, I was a seasoned road veteran, having just come off of playing 250 or more shows a year for three years straight. So, entertaining a room was like falling off a bike for me. It felt a little too easy to impress everyone there, if I'm being completely honest. Most of the other people in town doing what I did, with a few exceptions, were just fraternity guys who could sing a little and had learned how to play guitar just a few years earlier. They were not pros. This all worked to my advantage. Wilbur was suitably impressed on that first night, and immediately after I was done told me that I could have a regular Wednesday night slot if I wanted it. Of course, I said yes. Wilbur had also made a call during my set to the manager of a place a few doors down from the grog house called The Swamp and told him to come down to check me out. The manager of The Swamp was so impressed that he immediately booked me for all foreseeable Friday happy hour sets coming up at his place. So in one fell swoop, in my very first night as a Gainesvillian, I secured two regular weekly gigs. I never would have guessed it would have been that easy. Now, mind you, These gigs didn't pay a lot. The going rate for any show back then was around 75 bucks a night. This was for three hours of music or more. I ended up finding another place in town called Tequila Joe's within the next month or so that agreed to book me for Tuesdays and Thursdays, so my schedule was pretty full up right out of the gate. Kelly had a full roster of classes and had no free time to hold down a job and handle a full course load, so I'd be supporting both of us on music alone. I'm not going to lie, the first few years were pretty rough financially. We lived in a not-so-great duplex in a not-so-great area of town. I took every single gig that I could get my hands on, and I played a lot. Five to six nights a week, and sometimes two gigs a day. It was not uncommon for me to do a happy hour set at the Swamp from 5.30 to 8.30, and then pack my stuff and go do 10.30 to 1.30 up at the Grog House. I had a tip jar out at my shows, but college kids never usually put more than a couple bucks in here or there, but every little bit helped. There were exceptions, however. Wilbur had a rule at the Grog House that under no circumstances was anyone to ever play the song Brown-Eyed Girl. He hated it with a fiery passion. There were always three to four big requests with every college crowd. Brown-Eyed Girl, Margaritaville, American Pie, and Sweet Home Alabama. And I wasn't fond of any of them. Still not. On one particular night, a group of guys came up to me at the grog house and dropped a $20 bill into my tip jar and asked for Brown Eyed Girl. I announced it over the PA out to Wilbur and I said, hey man, these guys just dropped a $20 into my tip jar for Brown Eyed Girl. I can't not play it. Wilbur was having none of this. So he walked right up to the stage in front of everyone and dropped another 20 in, looked at the group of guys who had tipped me to play it and said, he's not playing it. Not to be outdone, the guys then ponied up yet another 20 bucks and looked at Wilbur and said, oh, he's gonna play it. This continued on for a few more rounds until there was $160 in my tip jar with the last 20 being Wilbur's. The guys finally gave up. So, I made 160 bucks and didn't have to play the song. I had made more in my tip jar for the night than I was actually being paid to be there. This kind of thing didn't happen very often, but it was awesome when it did. Wilbur also used to delight in winning bets at the bar that he could finish a pint of beer quicker than anyone. College frat guys would be so filled with hubris and arrogance, thinking that they could beat him that they'd almost line up to try. Wilbur would promise a free bar tab to anyone that could beat him, and no one ever did. He'd finish an entire pint in nearly one gulp. I also once watched him finish an entire pitcher of beer in the time it took a guy to drink a pint. It was impressive. Over time, Wilbur and I became pretty close friends. He was only a few years older than I was, and we got along great. He was incredibly kind and generous, and was always looking out for Kelly and I. He knew we didn't have a lot of money, so he would always take us out and treat us to movies or sushi, refusing to take no for an answer. He loved the company and friendship that Kelly and I provided, and we loved hanging out with him. The owners of the Grog House put Wilbur in charge of buying a sound system to put into the club. They were doing some upgrades and renovation. When I moved to Gainesville, I had a really small PA that barely covered the places I was playing. It got the job done, but not very well. I couldn't afford anything else, so I had to make do with what I had. Wilbur used to love to pick my brain for equipment advice during this time. He started getting Musician's Friend catalogs delivered to the bar and would spend time flipping through them with me before and after my gigs. For those unfamiliar, Musician's Friend is an online retailer of professional music gear of all kinds. Instruments, live sound, recording equipment, etc. Wilbur would ask my advice on what gear I thought the club should get and what they'd need in order to be able to have bands, solo acts, and DJs fill the room properly. He also loved asking me what I'd buy if I had an unlimited budget. We'd play the what-if game a lot, and I didn't think much of it. It's just something friends do to pass the time sometimes. One afternoon, I got a call from Wilbur asking if I was home and if I'd be around. I said yes, and I asked him why. What's up? He just said, okay, I'm near your place now and I was going to swing by real quick to give you something. I was puzzled, but I said, okay. A few minutes later, the doorbell rang and it was Wilbur. He said, come out here for a second. And when I walked out into the parking lot of our apartment, I saw three large Yamaha PA system cabinets, two mains and a monitor, and a Gibson guitar case all laid out next to Wilbur's car. He had bought me a whole new setup. And a new Gibson acoustic guitar. He had to have spent over $2,500 on all this stuff. I asked him, What's all this? He looked at me and said, It's for you, man. I was in shock and then I was in tears. I looked at Wilbur in disbelief and I said, Man, it's way too much. I can't accept this. He just smiled and said, Well, It's already paid for, and I'm not returning it, so you'll just have to take it. Listen, I believe in you. You need better gear, and I want you to go be successful, so just take it and go do that. All I could do was cry. I gave him the biggest bear hug and just kept saying, thank you. I was so moved. If there's one thing I've learned over time, it's that being a gracious gift receiver is every bit as important as being a generous gift giver. When people want to give you something, regardless of how big or small it is, to refuse or deny them of the blessing that they want to bestow upon you is wrong. It's the equivalent of an insult in my book. And the same goes for compliments. I'm still not very good at taking them, but a meaningful thank you goes a long way in every scenario. On a side note, To this day, it still blows my mind that so many Nashville musicians don't compliment one another. I, for one, refuse to play by those rules. If I play with someone and I enjoy what they do, I fucking tell them right away. Same goes for when I see someone in another band or another artist that I like or enjoy, online or otherwise, I tell them. The reason we all got into this thing in the first place is because we have a giant hole in some part of our psyche that will never, ever be filled. The least we can all do is grab a shovel and throw a little dirt in there to try to lift each other up. Okay, off my soapbox now. Just after spring break time for the University of Florida in 2001, Wilbur and I both got the same annoying, horrible chest cold. The reason I remember this so well is because you could set your watch by getting sick around that time of year in Gainesville. All the students would go off to wherever they were spending their spring break. They'd mingle with other students from other places. And inevitably, they'd all come back to town with some new germ or new virus or whatever and spread that illness around. I remember Wilbur and I making fun of each other for coughing so bad. Shut up, motherfucker. No, you shut up. My cough eventually went away. Wilbur's didn't. His lasted until late June. One day around that time when I called Wilbur, he answered the phone and told me he was in the hospital. Oh shit, where are you? Are you okay? He told me that he had suffered congestive heart failure. Jesus, man. Can you have visitors? He said he was okay and that he could have visitors. He also told us he was at North Florida Regional Hospital, which happened to be just up the street from our apartment. Okay, Kelly and I are on the way. Kelly and I went up to see him that day and he seemed totally fine. He was up and around, he was making jokes, he was the usual Wilbur. We hung out with him for a while and he said it looked like he'd be discharged before long and that he'd reach out as soon as he was back home. That was good enough for us. Wilbur's condition obviously hadn't been brought on by some spring break related illness. His unhealthy lifestyle combined with the fact that he was drastically overweight led to this. His heart was under enormous strain from all of it. I tried calling Wilbur during the 4th of July holiday and got no answer. I then tried calling the hospital to see if maybe he was there, and the person I reached told me he'd been discharged. So I called and left Wilbur another brief message. Hey man, happy 4th of July. I just called the hospital and they told me you'd been sent home. Hope you're feeling better. Call me dude. Love you man. See you soon. On July 8th, in the early part of the day, I got a phone call from one of the other bar managers from the Grog House. He could barely speak; he could barely get words out. Michael, I um, I just needed to tell you that Wilbur passed away yesterday. I felt a cold chill across my heart. My eyes welled up with tears, and I completely broke down. I was in shock. I was in denial. How could this be? The hospital told me he'd been released. No. Kelly and I were both completely devastated. Even now, as I'm writing this nearly 22 years later, I'm getting choked up a little bit. His funeral was held not very long after that, and it was really rough. His mother was inconsolable. She fell sobbing and screaming in front of his casket, and had to be helped up. His brother delivered a beautiful eulogy, and it was a beautiful tribute to a beautiful man. There was a slideshow of photos of Wilbur, ranging from when he was younger up until just before he passed away, and that made things seem even more horrible. He was only 31 years old. It was one of the most painful funerals I've ever been to. The grog house staff, who all adored Wilbur we're suffering as well we had all lost a great friend i still think about him all the time and i hope that if he could see me today that he'd be proud and excited about all the things i've gone on to accomplish since that time all those years ago when he told me he wanted me to go be successful i've tried to honor his wishes as much for him as for myself rest easy my sweet friend thank you for the kindness you bestowed upon me in our time together The road we traveled was far too short. Gone, but never, ever forgotten. 2. Stan Lynch When I first moved to Gainesville, I stumbled across an article in the local newspaper about Stan Lynch, the original drummer for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's a well known fact that Tom Petty and the rest of his famous band were all from Gainesville. His legendary song American Girl contains the line Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by out on 441 like waves crashing on the beach. I lived almost directly off of the now famous Route 441 for a number of years. The article in the paper was discussing the fact that Stan co owned a local music store in Gainesville called Sims Music with his business partner a guy named Jeff Sims. I had been to Sims a few times since moving to town, but after reading the article, I made a point of going into the store the next time I needed to buy strings and guitar picks with a copy of my self-recorded, self-produced CD called Spin. I met Jeff Sims that day and had a really nice chat with him, and I just kind of shamelessly told him that I wanted to give him my CD to give to Stan because I wanted to see if he'd be interested in working with me. It took tremendous balls, and I'm not sure where I got them. Thankfully, Jeff was a really sweet guy and was completely understanding of the plight of the independent musician. He also knew that getting the attention of his powerful and famous friend and business partner could be a big leg up for someone like me. The truth is, I was a huge fan of not just Tom Petty, but every member of the Heartbreakers. Stan Lynch is still one of the all-time great drummers. Guitarist Mike Campbell has always been on my Mount Rushmore of guitar players. Keyboardist Ben Montench similarly provided me with a lot of inspiration on the keyboards. And if you're a songwriter and you don't count Tom Petty as a huge influence, then I'm not sure I trust you. Stan had left the Heartbreakers in 1994 just after playing drums on Mary Jane's Last Dance. After his departure, he moved back to Florida where he partnered with longtime friend Don Henley. To help put together the Eagles' reunion album, Hell Freezes Over. He also toured with the Eagles. Aside from his incredible drumming, Stan also contributed to albums by the following artists Jackson Brown, T Bone Burnett, The Birds, Belinda Carlisle, Bob Dylan, The Eagles, Elliot Easton, Eurythmics, Aretha Franklin, Don Henley, John Mellencamp, Roger McGuinn, Scotty Moore, Stevie Nicks. Timothy B. Schmidt, Del Shannon, Toto, and Warren Zevon, and a whole shit ton of others. He also co-wrote and or wrote songs for Eddie Money, Don Henley, Tim McGraw, Ringo Starr, Toto, the Jeff Healy Band, and the Fabulous Thunderbirds, among others. Jeff promised me that he'd deliver my CD to Stan the very first chance he got, and I told myself that I would not bring it up again no matter how many times I went into Sims from that point forward. I figured it would help my chances if I just played it extra cool and just kept my mouth shut. Every time Jeff saw me come into the store, he would actually bring it up, much to my surprise. He would say, Man, I haven't forgotten about you. Stan has a huge pile of stuff on his desk, but I promise you your CD is in there, and I'm keeping on him about it. I had also left Jeff a business card with all my info on it to give Stan along with my CD. One afternoon, about six to eight months later, I was checking my voicemail and was shocked and surprised to find that I had missed a call and a voicemail from none other than Stan Lynch himself. I pretty much memorized it. I think I may have listened to it about a hundred times over. Hey, Michael, it's Stan Lynch. I finally got down to the bottom of this big pile of stuff on my desk and had a chance to listen to your CD and I just wanted to call and tell you that you're very good. I wanted to see what your schedule was like, man, and if there's anywhere that I could come catch you live sometime soon. Give me a call back. I was on cloud nine. I couldn't believe it. I returned his call, but missed him on a few occasions. It was a busy time for Stan, as luck would have it. Several plans for he and Jeff Sims to come out and catch one of my local gigs fell through, but we did manage to make a tentative appointment to get together and write. Stan was in the process of reuniting with his former bandmates at this time in 2002. They were about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I recall watching the ceremony aired on VH1 at the time. Stan played American Girl and Mary Jane's Last Dance with Tom Petty and the rest of the guys. Truth be told, I was kind of flipping out a little. I was having a really hard time wrapping my head around all of that. And in the process, I was busy getting into my own head about all of it. Stan Lynch wanted to write with me. He liked my record. Jesus. Not long after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, we managed to nail down a day and time, and we agreed that I'd travel to Stan's beach home in nearby St. Augustine, Florida, and spend the day with him. It was about an hour and 20-minute drive for me. I left in the morning and got there fairly early that day. I pulled into the driveway, parked, and got out. I walked up to the house and rang the doorbell. Stan greeted me at the door very warmly. He was dressed casually in shorts and a t-shirt, looking like kind of a beach bum. We walked up to the second level of his home, which opened up into a spacious living area with windows on all sides. Beachfront to the left and beachfront to the right. It was breathtaking. I tried to break the ice a little bit with some humor and I said, wow, this must be horrible for you. He laughed, but I think he could tell that I was really nervous. I hadn't really been used to writing with other people very much at that point. Exploding Boy was a collaborative effort at times, but that situation often involved the three of us just jamming around until we'd hit on an idea, and then we'd either work it into a song, or I would sit down with the parts and arrange them all and bring them back to the guys with a little more structure at a later date. Or... I would just bring in a finished or partially finished song idea, and the guys would then add their bits of flair to it. I'd never sat down all together with acoustic guitars and wrote a song from the ground up with anyone. Luckily, Stan was really easy to work with. He asked me if I had any ideas or chord progressions or song starts, any kind of jumping off point. I did have a couple things, and he ended up liking one of them, so we started building on that idea. And within a couple hours, we had a basic framework and a few skeletal lyric ideas flowing. At one point, when we were stuck on a line, he said, Okay, what would our friend Tom write here? Our friend Tom? Holy shit. You mean your friend Tom? And then it happened. I froze. I started thinking of all the people that Stan had worked with and played with and wrote with. Holy shit. This guy has worked with members of the Eagles. Bigger holy shit. This guy has toured with Bob Dylan. Even bigger holy shit. This guy has worked with Beatles. I am so fucked. And with God as my witness, what happened next hammered the very last nail into my coffin. Stan's house phone rang in the next room. He let it go to voicemail. Back then, people had physical answering machines, and you could listen to people leaving you messages out loud while they left them. Hey, Stan, it's Don. Give me a call back when you can. I wanted to run some stuff by you. Talk soon. Holy fuck. Did Don Henley just leave a fucking voicemail for Stan in the middle of our writing session? Yup, he sure as fuck did. Fuck. At this point, Stan knew full well that I was in the process of nearly passing out, so he tried to make me feel comfortable by acting even more nonchalant and relaxed himself. But this was having the opposite effect on me. There was a half-bathroom in the direct line of sight from the L-shaped couch where I was sitting. We were talking about maybe writing a bridge for the song. Stan walked to the bathroom, left the door wide open, pulled his shorts down, and started pissing just talking to me over his shoulder the entire time. I don't think we should write a bridge for this song, man, because, well, it's going to sound like we wrote a bridge. So we didn't. Another hour or so went by, and we had a finished song. I wasn't sure at the time if it was any good or not, but it was finished. Stan then asked me, So, what is it that you want to do, man? Like, what's your goal? All I could say was, I'd like to be able to write songs, maybe get a band together, try and get a record deal and get on the road. He just looked at me and said, that's cool, man, but I'll tell you, I've been there and done all that, as you know. For me, if it's a choice between going on the road and spending the summer at the beach, I'm spending the summer at the beach. I don't know how many more summers I may get, so I want to be right here for them. I couldn't really relate to this but I respected what he had said. I had a gig booked that night back in Gainesville, so I had to say goodbye and get going. Stan seemed mildly bummed. Man, that's too bad. I was going to offer you dinner here. In hindsight, I should have taken him up on it. I could tell that he liked me, but I feel like I may have blown the opportunity a bit by just being so completely starstruck that day. It was nearly impossible not to be. I've been in touch with Stan here and there over the following years. Most recently was shortly before I moved to Nashville, which is actually 10 years ago now. He wished me luck with the move and told me that Nashville was a tight-knit community and that I would meet people in days and weeks rather than months and years. And that has proven to be true. He told me to feel free to reach out if I ever needed anything else, but I never took him up on it. Tom Petty is on a very short list of people who I've never met that made me break down and cry when they died. The others were Neil Peart of Rush and Robin Williams, both idols of mine. The loss of Tom Petty was crushing to me. I thought of Stan a lot during that time and wondered how he was doing. I know it had to be horrible for him, as I know it was for the other members of the Heartbreakers. I consider myself so very fortunate to have had this experience. Being literally one degree of separation away from so many of my biggest musical heroes through Stan is still an overwhelming thought for me. I think I've learned to appreciate it even more as the years have gone by, and now I wear it proudly as a badge of honor. It has been a long and winding road, as my father said to me all those years ago. But what a beautiful road. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M I S T E R M I C H A E L J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.